Well, I guess we're ready for the last lap, at least today anyway. And we're getting through. You've probably become weary of judgment and wrath and punishment and all these negative aspects of the book of Revelation. If I can stay on schedule, we will uh, complete that portion. Well, not all of it, but uh, it becomes a lot brighter, more positive as we get to chapter 19. But before we get there, session 19 deals with the most severe of judgments. (laughs) So if you thought the others prior to these judgments, then wait till you see what we have in chapters 15 and 16. So these two chapters... I've entitled the bowl judgments. Well, they deal with a third set of judgments called the bowl judgments. In terms of our outline, running through chapter 18, we saw the vision of Jesus Christ. We're looking at the tribulation from Jesus Christ, 4 through 18. We looked at chapters 4 through 7 before even this half. We looked at trumpet judgments, the second group of judgments, chapters 8 through 11. We had a heavenly explanation that we completed in the last session, chapters 12 through 14. So it's somewhat of a break, chapters 4 through, or 12 through 14, a break from the sequence of events more explanatory, and the focus primarily, 12 and 13, dealt with the major characters or the major participants in the tribulation. And we looked at seven of them. And we've already seen some of them uh, acting out or participating in the tribulation, and we'll see all seven of them in an active role beginning or continuing through the rest of the book of Revelation. So that's just what we completed. 15 through 18 are the final plagues. So that's the last part of this major division, tribulation from Jesus Christ, ending in chapter 18. Uh, Beginning in chapter 19, we have uh, the third division. I call that the consummation from Uh, Jesus Christ or of Jesus Christ. Pardon me? Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Thank you. Yes, I do. Um, I'm not sure. Here we go. In fact, why don't I give you both of them? That way... Won't have to forget. Thank you, Amy. Uh, Just by way of review, uh, we've looked at these major events that take place during the timeline, the tribulation period. We have three sets of judgments. And as you notice from the outline sheet, Uh, Most of the uh, structure of this part of the book are surrounded around these three sets of judgments. We saw six seal judgments. We saw seven trumpet judgments. 
And what we will now look at is another set. And if you remember the uh, relationship of these that I tried to support with a few exegetical details is this combination of judgments in parallel, particularly as we get to the end, and somewhat of a sequence. We have the seal judgments and then later in the tribulation, we don't know when, perhaps starting somewhere in the beginning or the uh, rather the uh, first half, running primarily through the second half. And then the bowls probably are more concentrated towards the very end. At least that's the chronology that I feel most comfortable with. So both of these chapters... I've entitled The Final Plagues, because that's the uh, verbiage that John uses in describing these bold judgments. There are three major parts that we will look at. The first part, chapter 15, is preparation for war, or wrath, rather, preparation for wrath. So, chapter 15 is introductory, or we might describe it as preliminary, before we have the actual judgments described. Chapter 16 describes specifically the seven judgments, the seven bowl judgments, all seven of them. All in one chapter, rapid succession. And these judgments are not limited the seal judgments seem to be the least severe of the three uh, series of judgments. The trumpet judgments seem to be more severe than the seals, but yet even they only encompassed a third of the earth, in the first four at least. These are full displays of God's judgment. And they seem to even overlap perhaps the other judgments, so they give an accumulative effect in terms of all of the horrendous things that are taking place at the end of this period of time. So, 15 is preparation for wrath. More detail concerning that part of the outline. The preparation, uh, you can divide that into three parts. Verse 1, we have the introduction of these plagues, or simply stated plagues. John, again, characteristic, he sees another vision, so we have the identical, identical phraseology, chi adon, introducing another vision, a series of visions that are going to run through all of the book of Revelation. Another sign in heaven, we've already talked about that word, so he's introducing something here that uh, is symbolic of something else. A sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, and these plagues are the, are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished, finally. <laughs> uh, so this is the concluding part of this portion of uh, the book of Revelation, which deals with plagues. And I've named them plagues because of verse 1, and the reference again elsewhere refers to them as plagues. Uh, 
Uh, this is going to remind us, in fact, there are some parallels with some other plagues in Scripture. And I think there's a clear allusion, and not only an allusion, but parallels with the plagues of Egypt. And I think it's intentional. What God is doing is He's reminding us that if He, on a localized level, on a small scale, in a small geographical region, if He can pour out wrath on an Egyptian nation like He did, uh, there's no reason why He can't uh, also pour out wrath on a larger scale that will encompass all of the earth. So we will see some parallels. In fact, I've got a slide that uh, kind of lays out some of the main play or some of the main plagues in the book of Revelation that are tied to the plagues of Egypt. These plagues also resemble some of the trumpet judgments. Some of the trumpet judgments seem to also allude to or are similar to some of the plagues of Moses in the book of Exodus as well. So verse one. We're introduced in, in this vision to seven angels who had seven plagues. These are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. The main focus of chapter 15 is basically praising God for wrath. So beginning in verse 2, we, say, we see another part of the vision expanded here. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass. Now, that reminds us of the heavenly scene that we saw in chapters 4 and 5. Mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious from the beasts. These are the overcomers. These are believers. Now, it, remind us that, it reminds us that they are victorious. So, that means that uh, they have been faithful through all of the persecution. So they're victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name. And they're standing on this sea of glass. So they are martyrs. They have died. They've been faithful. They're holding the harps of God. We saw harps earlier. And in verse 3, they sang the song of Moses. What is this song of Moses? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. It could be Exodus 15, verses 1 through 5. That, that song of Moses is probably the most likely allusion here, but there's also another one in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, and some scholars see a combination of the two. In... Exodus 15, it is a song of Moses. And the main theme of it is how God has victoriously brought the children of Israel through the Exodus and has destroyed the enemies of the Jewish people. So this is probably an allusion to it. There's a lot of allusions to this Exodus experience. So in uh, Exodus 1 through 5, God is praised for his triumph over Pharaoh at, at the Red Sea. Now, Deuteronomy is another song, if you will, another song of Moses that is also a victory song. 
So uh, possibility, most, both of them may be in view or one or the other. Uh, you can probably take a pick. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 is a, a song that also is ultimate defeat of Israel's enemies. And it, it somewhat anticipates God ultimately bringing victory. So some scholars prefer that one as the background of what is in view in verse 3. They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, we don't know what the song of the Lamb is, except probably what we have contained in the book here. And again, it is uh, full of praise uh, and uh, worship and adoration. Great and marvelous are thy works. And the works that are in view are the works of judgment. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God, the Almighty, the righteous and, tr the, uh, righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. We don't think in terms of worshiping God for his judgment, but I think those are the main works that are in view in this, in this context. We've had judgment after judgment after judgment. Those are the main works that we've been looking at. And as a result of God dealing with not only the enemies of God, and we'll continue to do that uh, before we get into the, the last plagues, uh, we have this outburst of, of praise. Now, I should have mentioned in verse 1, this sign is in heaven. So this is the heavenly scene. Remember, we need to keep track of where the events are taking place. So God is praised. The praise comes out of heaven. Verse 1. The praise is consisting of great and marvelous praises offered to God for His works. Praise for essentially the wrath. Uh, angels again are involved. And uh, those, let's see, the angels in verse 1, actually. Verse 2 begins the section dealing with the praise, 2 through 4. In fact, I'm jumping ahead here. Uh, angels involved in verses 2 through 3. Martyrs are the ones that praise. They're the ones that are actually the ones that are singing the, song and, the songs and, and actually praising God. Verses 2 and 3. In verse 4, a focus on the glory of the Lord. Who will not fear a reverence, O Lord, and glorify thy name? The glory of God is in view. In fact, these are things that we should continually be praising God for, for his works that are great and marvelous, and primarily for God's glory, that God's glory will be uh, uh, evident to unbelievers as well as believers. Uh, so we have praise in uh, chapter 15. And then in chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, we have a presentation of bowls to these, these angels. Verse 5. After these things, I looked, 
and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. So another vision. Uh, the first one focuses in on worship. And now this, as we are prepared and have our attitudes and our minds on the right focus on God as righteous, God as glorious, God as great, God as marvelous, uh, God as righteous and true. The implication that these truths related to his judgment, we need to have them before us in order to have the right attitude and understanding as to what's taking place here. God can be praised for the wrath that he's being poured, that will be poured out. And now, beginning in verses 5 through 8, uh, we're going to have the presentation of the bowls that introduces us to chapter 16. Uh, beginning verse 5, it's in the context of heaven again. The tabernacle of testimony in, the heaven, in heaven was open. And seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. This is the heavenly temple, the counterpart of the temple on earth. They're clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. Now, linen clothes and brightness, uh, the imagery here is holiness. The imagery is purity. In... Uh, in other contexts, it refers to the believer that are wearing similar garments, sometimes linen, sometimes bright and white clothing like we have with angels. So angels can, can wear the same clothing. It is a picture of holiness and purity. In terms of the believer, it also is an allusion to uh, redemption, the means by which we become at least positionally and eventually ultimately holy and uh, purified. These are the positive or the good angels who remain holy, so they wear the same garments. Imagery of purity and uh, not, not always salvation, but oftentimes related when it's believers to salvation. Uh, so garments that are similar to those that uh, believers wear. And verse 7, we have involvement of these four living creatures. Uh, we see them often in the book of Revelation. They are angelic creatures, more than likely. And one of the four living creatures uh, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Here's another example where angels... Angelic beings are part of the outworking of God's judgment. Participants. Uh, we saw the four living creatures in chapter 6. They were involved in the seal judgments. Now again, we see them involved in the bowl judgments. So they are a part of what God is doing in bringing judgment on the earth. So the seven angels have these seven golden bowls, or one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Now, the word there, there are two words in the Greek language. There's uh, orge, and a second word is the word that we have here in uh, verse 7, thumos. 
in a lot of contexts, orge is the more settled, determined, kind of less emotional wrath or anger. They both can be translated anger. They both can be translated wrath. Thumas, oftentimes in other contexts, except the book of Revelation, is oftentimes in relationship to man's anger, which is less stable, if you will, or oftentimes it's more emotional. Uh, and sometimes it's uh, sudden and without thought, if you will. Now, God's thumas, and here, this is God's thumas, expression of the same kind of anger that is described in terms of man. God's anger is never like man's anger in terms of it being uh, necessarily emotional or an outburst or unstable. It is always a settled uh, anger, but it probably implies that this is an intense anger, just uh, whereas the uh, orge word is more the settled, determined, kind of consistent anger that goes along with righteousness. So both words are used in reference to God. And both words are used in other contexts besides this one in the book of Revelation. So this is thumos. Now, if you noticed uh, the other word, where was the other one uh, that we saw recently? Uh, or gay. I don't see it in my notes here. By the way, in verse 2, no, in verse 1, when it is translated, because in them the wrath of God is finished, that's Thumas as well. Let's see, I think it's in chapter. Yeah, chapter 14. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. I believe that's Thumas, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his orge. So I think we have two uh, or both verses in that context. So both come into play. And he will be tormented with fire, etc. Uh, later on, when we have uh, wrath in, in verse 19, chapter 14, that's Thumas. And we have Thumas in this context as well, in verse 7 of chapter 15. So, God uh, expresses different kinds of anger, you might say, it appears. But He's involved in the usage of both words. So, these seven angels are given these seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Uh, one of the slides that I showed there gives uh, a visual of what possibly it could look like. Verse 8, and the temple was filled with smoke. So, it comes from the temple. All of these indications indicate to us that uh, this is a righteous act. What God is doing is righteous, is, is just, is holy anger. Uh, these are just bits and pieces of evidence uh, that supports the idea that anger and wrath is proper in its context when it deals with God's judgment. It is righteous and holy, appropriate, and in fact necessary 
because it is from heaven for one thing. It is great, it is described as from God who is great and marvelous. Angels involved, good angels are involved. Martyrs praise God for his wrath. It brings glory to God, verses 3 and 4. Living creatures, another order of angels, are involved in the outworking of this wrath. So it's all preparatory because these, these judgments are the most severe. And for us as humans, as we look at them, we might question and wonder, is this appropriate? Well, they are introduced in chapter 15 in such a way that we can see, yes, these are appropriate and in fact necessary because of all of these reasons. This is some of the exegetical data that supports that concept. And then finally, they're also from the temple, verse 5 and also in verse 8. So the temple was filled with smoke and there's the glory of God again as well. So you could include the glory of God in verse, verse 8 in that category there. Uh, from the glory of God and from his, from his power, you could add that to the list, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So we're getting to the end here. So chapter 15 is preparatory for the wrath that will be revealed in chapter 16. It's preparatory in terms of introducing what's happening. It's preparatory in that it gives us an insight. We may not understand wrath, and our culture revolts against it. The unbeliever doesn't believe in it. So chapter 15 is designed to prepare us to be able to accept what God has said here, as difficult as these judgments may appear. They're necessary, and in fact, they are holy and righteous. So the whole chapter is preparatory to, to better receive what God is going to reveal in terms of what will take place. Chapter 16 is the actual pouring of wrath, and all seven of them are contained in uh, chapter 16. So the pouring of wrath, first one, beginning in verse 1. And I heard, again, there's lots of noise in heaven, a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour, pour out the seven bowls of the wrath, that's Thumas again, the wrath of God into the earth. So another example of angels directly involved in the executing of God's judgment. So you can add these to that list that I gave you earlier of angels directly. One of the ministries of angels is to administer and execute God's judgment. So chapter 16, we're going to have seven angels that uh, are directly God's instruments in executing judgment. The first angel, verse 2. Now, be reminded that uh, when we read these bowl judgments, remember that these are at the end and that all of these other, most of these other judgments have already come about. They have already been poured out. 
So, in large measure, the earth is somewhat limited in terms of its water supply. Uh, the vegetation, at least in the trumpet judgments, has been destroyed at least to the level of one-third. So people are living in limited uh, situations in terms of resources. So a third of the earth has already been destroyed. A third of the fresh water has been destroyed. A third of uh, sea life has already been desto- uh, d- uh, destroyed. So people are under probably famine conditions. And then on top of that, now we have more judgments. And so these are going to have a a kind of a multiplying effect on, on the population. And by this time, we've already had a couple of judgments where half the population of the world has been wiped out. And that's just in two direct judgments. That doesn't include what's what has happened as a result of other judgments where other people have died. These are just a listing of two specific judgments, one bowl judgment and one trumpet judgment. So on top of that, in verse 2, the first angel went out, or, yeah, went and poured out his bowl into the earth, not a third of it, the whole planet. And it became a loathsome and malignant malignant sore upon the men. Now, it's a little bit more specific. Just an image there to put that in your mind there. And that's nothing probably what it'll look like when when it's actually on site. (laughs) Change it. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) You can't handle the picture. What are you going to do with the sores? Well, you're not going to get them, right? Uh, It became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men, now it's more specific, who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. So the judgments are going to focus, not all of them, but at least this first one is is, uh, focused on the worshippers of the beast and his kingdom. Uh, God is going to bring that kingdom to basically its knees. So this Savior that the believers or the unbelievers are trusting in, his kingdom is going to unravel and it's going to come as a result of these bold judgments. So we have the first one, human sores. Next, we have uh, one that uh, is poured out on the, the rivers and springs of water, verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Now, what does that remind you of? Yeah, the first plague in in Egypt. So, rivers turning to blood. And I heard the angel of the waters, and there's another angel... And here's one that seems to have influence or control over rivers or movement of waters, etc. Flooding, maybe. Saying, and we're reminded, these are righteous things. This, this is a righteous act. Uh, or righteous art thou. Righteous things that God, are do, God is doing. Righteous art thou who art and who was. O Holy One. This is an expression of the holiness of God. Because thou did judge these things. Just a little 
reminder that these are righteous acts. What God is doing is not out of line, not excessive. Remember, God is wise. God knows all things. These things are necessary. And we're continually reminded that these are in accordance with His standards. That's why they're called righteous acts. And then verse 6. So, before we even get into it, we're just reminded again. Verse 6. For they poured out the blood of the saints. So, judgment is meted out according to what is deserved. There's, uh, in terms of God's justice... Uh, it's never excessive. It's in accordance to sin. Uh, we always underestimate the severity of sin, and these judgments serve to, to indicate to us God's viewpoint. And what God's view of sin is, uh, we may think these judgments are excessive, but they're in accordance with, with sin. And we have that note in, uh, in verse 6. Uh, they received this judgment because it corresponds to the blood of the saints and the prophets that they are responsible for in uh, inflicting pain on the others. So, verse 6, And thou hast given them blood to drink. And notice the little phrase, they deserve it. So, none of these judgments are undeserved. They're never excessive. Chapter 16 is emphasizing that point. We could have made that same point at some of the other points that are not as clear, but this one is crystal clear that when God judges, this is the righteous compensation, if you will, or righteous punishment that you and I deserve, actually. And we see this correspondence between what they did and the punishment that they will be inflicted with these judgments. There is a concept, uh, I think, in, in uh, the Gospels when, when Jesus makes a few statements. There seems to be a severity of judgment that is dependent on uh, levels of sin. Uh, just like in the kingdom, there are various rewards for faithfulness. Not everyone receives the same reward. So, corresponding to that, there seems to be various degrees and various levels of punishment as well. This adds support to that idea. When Jesus was speaking about the miracles, if they had been performed in Sodom and Gomorrah, or if the miracles had been performed similar to those in Capernaum, what's the other imagery that is used, or the other city that is used, or location? Besides Sodom, there's another place that he mentioned. Well, he says Sodom and Gomorrah, but there's another place. But anyway, Jesus basically says that uh, they would have repented. And in that same context, he seems to indicate that there's degrees of punishment. Your punishment is going to be greater because you had greater revelation and greater opportunity. So there seems to be degrees of hell, degrees of judgment, just like there are degrees or levels of reward. Uh, but all of it will be righteous and all, all of it will be according to God's uh, wisdom and God's determination. So he's not going to be excessive. They seem that way from our perspective, but we don't have the uh, 
the perspective that, that God does. So, uh, verse 6 seems to indicate that. It is deserving. Every judgment that God inflicts is something that is deserved. In verse 7, And I heard the altar saying, Yes. In other words, there's agreement. And it comes from the altar. It's probably the altar of incense from the Holy of Holies. The The altar, this may be a figure of speech, because altars don't talk. The altar representing the presence of God. In other words, this is God agreeing. Uh, saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true. Notice the emphasis of true and righteous are thy judgments. So we have God's estimation of what he is doing in pouring out judgment. These are things that need to be stressed to people in our culture because our culture doesn't like... Well, I don't know about any culture that likes judgment, but we don't understand and most people in our culture uh, uh, deny the concept of God's judgment. They have a hard time with it. And we have a hard time with it as well, even believing the Word. So we have these little notes that, that... that remind us of the righteousness and the trueness of these judgments. So we have kind of a departure from the very beginning. Just a few little notes to remind us that all of this is deserved. All of this is appropriate. All of it is righteous. All of it is according to truth. Uh, God has omniscience, so he knows what, uh, what is required and uh, the judgments go in accordance with what God, know, God knows, his, his trueness or omniscience. Well, we have another. Well, the third is, did I skip three? I think I, I did. I think I skipped over three. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. So the seas turned to blood. The rivers turned to blood. That's four through seven. Here's the slide I was telling you about that kind of parallels the judgments of the bowls. So we have the, the bowls and the, the trumpets. Uh, that parallel what happened in Egypt in Exodus. And I think it's a deliberate parallel just to show, just as God did a work in the Old Testament in a localized area, in this period of tribulation, God is going to do something similar. And just as in the Exodus, they were serving a purpose when God brought them, and it was primarily related to salvation and the deliverance of the children of Israel, So also these judgments are designed to awaken people to their need in order to escape uh, the second death. Uh, First of all, we we saw the earth, the bowl judgments. We have sores. Uh, We have a trumpet judgment where we have a third of the earth burnt. Uh, That's not quite parallel, but... Uh, I, I threw that in there as, as a way of uh, just contrast. We have a judgment in Egypt. The sixth uh, plague also inflicted uh, boils on the, uh, the Egyptians. In terms of the second bowl judgment, the sea. Sea turns to blood. The rivers also turn to blood. Uh, 
and one of the trumpets. We do have a clear parallel there. Again, we have a third of the earth turning, or a third of the sea turning to blood. A third of the rivers became bitter. Not so much blood, but there's a little correlation there. The first plague on the Nile was uh, the plague that Moses turned the water uh, into blood on that occasion, the Egyptian occasion. Okay. Oh, by the way, in the trumpet judgment, uh, there is a relationship to blood. Remember, hail and fire mixed with blood was thrown down to the earth, burning a third of the trees and a third of the grass. So we have... Four or three of the uh, bowl judgments. The fourth one is scorching heat. So Al Gore is right after all. There is going to be global warming. It's just not in our immediate future here. Fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. We've already had a judgment where the sun was somewhat diminished. Remember, a third of the sun and the stars were diminished in their intensity. That probably brought on a cold spell, and now we have the opposite. So God is working in terms of both hot and cold, scorching heat. So he pours the bowl on the sun, and it was given to it. Notice the little phrase again. It was given... To it to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with fierce heat. So this is intense. Probably hundred degree temperatures and above. And what do they do? They don't respond. Again, we have the theme of depravity. We saw that with the bowl judge or the trumpet judgments. We saw it with the seal judgments. We see it with the bowl judgments. So this is deserved. Man is depraved. Man will not respond even as a result of these horrendous events that take place on the earth. So rather than glorifying God, rather than humbling themselves, rather than turning to God uh, for relief, they blaspheme the name of God. Who has the power over these plagues. In other words, God could deliver if, if he so chose. They don't cry out for deliverance. They blaspheme his name instead. He has power over these plagues, and it says, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. So we have scorching heat. In verse 10, and the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast. Again, an emphasis on the empire of Antichrist. And his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. So we have intense suffering. And do they repent? Verse 11, they blaspheme the name of God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. No repentance. Uh, this is depravity. 
You can support the idea that unless God stirs a heart, unless God draws a person, as John 6 says, men will not respond. We have some examples of that in the book of Revelation. No, well, localized in terms of uh, uh, the kingdom of the beast, yeah. It's worldwide, so, but it's it's specifically probably administrative. It's probably uh, leadership. It's probably uh, people that are more closely related to the beast, rather than people that just simply took the mark of the beast. So the beast is is darkened. His kingdom became darkened. The kingdom, uh, a darkness that is painful. I can't imagine that. Can you imagine darkness that becomes painful such that you gnaw your teeth? They didn't repent. They blasphemed. Sixth. This is an interesting one. In fact, we're going to have expansion of the next two. We're introduced to them, beginning in verse 12, to this next one. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates. Now, we've already had mention of the Euphrates in one of the uh, trumpet judgments. Here's another reference. So... This is dealing with peoples from the east, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. We've already seen a demon-possessed army of 200 million come out of the east. Some scholars see this as the same army uh, reiterated as another judgment. That is possible, but more than likely... This is another wave of unbelieving uh, soldiers or another army that's prepared. This one is the final one. The other one may have been an initial wave. This one is most certainly the final one because these are the final plagues. So we have this army prepared for the kings from the east. doesn't give a number in this case. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. There's the, the Trinity. There's the unholy Trinity all together in one verse. The dragon, the first beast, the false prophet. Now we have three unclean spirits. Uh, these are demonic spirits. Unclean spirits. Like frogs, resembling frogs, they're slimy, they're ugly, they're creepy. Spirits like frogs, so that's a simile. For they are spirits, and if that wasn't clear, the unclean spirits, it's made clear in verse 14. For they are spirits of demons. Very clearly in this passage. Performing signs, these are false miracles. These spirits which go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. It's going to tell us what this gathering is for when we get to verse 16. This is the last gathering of armies 
In fact, skip to verse 16. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har. That's Hebrew for mountain. The Hebrew word Har is a Hebrew word. So we have just a Greek transliteration of the Greek word for mountain, uh, Megiddon. Uh, A particular location in the land of Israel. Verse 15, just a quick little reminder, just kind of an encouragement in the midst of these most devastating and uh, horrendous judgments. More intense, more extensive than those that came before. On top of all of the others that we already saw. Just a little note here. Behold, I am coming like a thief. In other words, unexpectedly, suddenly, without announcement, like a thief would come and break into a house. So also the Lord is going to come quickly. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Just an encouragement to the believer here. Uh, By the way, this is another beatitude. We have five of them in the book of Revelation. This is uh, one of the, what we would describe as beatitudes or announcements of blessedness. Uh, Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. So it's just an encouragement to perseverance, an encouragement to hang in there. The Lord is coming soon. Stay awake. Be, be ready. Be alert. These times are troubling times. These are not only times of judgment, but uh, things that the believer has to be careful with. And what this is, is basically the, the gathering of the final battle. Now, we'll have some other references to Armageddon as well. We'll, we'll see some of that later on uh, in... Uh, chapter 18, uh, and also another passage, I think, in chapter 19. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, some scholars call chapter 19 the great chapter, the, the Greek word uh, megale, uh, the great chapter, because the word great occurs more frequently in chapter 16 than any other chapter. Everything here is at its highest intensity. The judgments are at their greatest level. And just some examples of this in verse 1. The loud voice is megale. Uh, Or great, you could even translate it, great voice. And then again, in verse 17, the next verse there, the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a great voice came out of the temple. Translated loud, that's probably appropriate translation for that Greek word. So we have a great voice, the heat of the fourth bowl judgment. It says it was given to it, let's see, where is it? Verse 9, and men were scorched with great heat. The American Standard translates it, fierce heat, that's... The Greek word megale. The great river Euphrates. Notice it says upon the great river Euphrates. 
Uh, verse 14, for the spirit of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth, the whole earth, to gather them together for the great day of God. Megalay again. We haven't got to it, but verse 18, we have a great earthquake. Verse 19, a great city, Babylon, Babylon the great. Uh, well, first, a great city in the beginning of verse 19, and then Babylon the great. Secondly, Babylon specifically. 21, great hail, uh, great plagues. So we have, what, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 occurrences of Megalay, more so in this chapter than any other. Kind of emphasizing we're getting to the end of these judgments. Everything is intensified. Everything is looked on, looked on in terms of its magnitude. Just a little side note there. The sixth Euphrates dried up in preparation for a final war. Verse 17. Well, before we get to that, let me expand on the location here. The kings are coming from uh, the east, crossing the Euphrates, because the Euphrates is dried up. They're headed south, if you will, or west, southwest. They are going to stage in uh, the land of Israel. This is preparatory, or this is kind of a description of the Battle of Armageddon, which we'll come back to. Uh, it's one of the bold judgments. Just a few images to kind of remind you of what Babylon was like in ancient times. There's kind of a map of ancient Babylon. We're going to talk a lot about Babylon in chapter 17 and 18. Uh, present day, Valley of Megiddo. Uh, let's, let's see, this is Mount Tabor and Moray, Mount Moray, from the archaeological site of Megiddo. So this is the valley of Megiddo where this battle will take place. And if you have an opportunity to go to Israel, this is a spectacular sight. You can see for miles across. In fact, the distance from uh, this point to where uh, this photograph that I took, uh, if I remember right, something like uh, 20 miles. And the final battle of history is going to take place in that valley named after the ancient city of Megiddo, which is the site that the photograph is taken from. Just another shot. That's uh, Mount Moray here. Not Mount Moore. <laughs> Mount Moray. This is from Nazareth. Looking across the same valley. And by the way, Jesus probably as a young boy probably sat on rocks outside of Nazareth and probably meditated on the Word and prayed as he overlooked this valley and he studied scripture, he was probably aware of things that are portrayed in the book of Revelation because he knew all the Old Testament prophecies pertaining to the final battle. Uh, just another little side note there. Uh, it's a beautiful valley. It's the breadbasket of the nation of Israel today. Before the Israelis took possession of the land, this whole area was a swamp land. And uh, malaria infested, uh, that's what the Arabs 
they had no concern about the land. Uh, so they didn't do anything to, to utilize it. Uh, the Israelis drained it, uh, cleansed it, and today it is one of the most productive sites on all of the earth. Uh, from there, they export all kinds of fruits, vegetables, all kinds of uh, grains, etc. Uh, most of their exports go to a lot of Arab nations. <laughs> and little tiny land of Israel. Uh, this is probably their most productive valley. It is also going to be the scene of horrendous bloodshed. In fact, we already saw a picture of that. The battle begins here, but it says that the blood's going to flow for 200 miles. Remember the end of chapter 14. To the, ho- the horse's bridle. So, great bloodshed. The last battle in this valley. Uh, There's looking from the other direction from Megiddo. Uh, This is from the site Megiddo. That's Nazareth up on the hills. Jesus, as I said, probably sat on these hills as a young boy and maybe even as a young man praying, meditating, taking in the sight of this great valley. This is from Mount Carmel. So it extends from um, the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Jordan, this Valley of Megiddo. Just more photographs. Okay. Last bowl judgment. Various cataclysms. Notice the similarity of these cataclysms with those that we saw in the bold judgments. They are strikingly similar. And this is the reason, as I've mentioned before, that I see them as parallel. So, verse 17, And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a, a loud voice again we, we continually have these loud voices come out of the temple from the throne saying it is done it's not the identical phrase that Jesus speaks when he says it is finished on the cross but it's reminiscent of it and it's very similar And basically, in this case, what is announced here from the temple, from the throne, ultimately from God Himself, is He's coming to the end of the judgment. There's an end to them. It is done. So the the time of separating evil from good is going to come to an end. Uh, we've spent a lot of time just sitting and watching as we or reading these passages. And these people will go through a very relatively short period of time, but they will come to an end. Uh, when you're experiencing the most severe pain, it seems like it never ends. But here's an announcement right off the bat. It is done. And now there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was great, a great earthquake. This is a final earthquake such as there had not been since man came upon the earth. So this is the most intense 
earthquake that has ever taken place. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty, so mighty, period. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Uh, By the way, part of the reason I gave you a distinction between the two words, here we have back-to-back both words. Both thumas and orge. So, literally, you could translate this to give her the cup of the wine of his wrath, wrath. The American Standard translates it fierce wrath. In other words, the most intense wrath that you can imagine, both words are used to describe it. So, you have back-to-back words. The American Standard distinguishes by saying fierce wrath. So, unimaginable wrath. It's coming to a conclusion. And then we have this description here. We not only have these flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, and earthquake, but here his words similar to the uh, bowl judgment, the sixth one, and every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and huge hailstones. So you have astrophysical judgments, about 100 pounds each. These are huge. You've never seen hail this this large. Uh, Came down from heaven upon men. Do men respond positively? No. At the very end of the bowl judgments, men still blaspheme God because of the plagues of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. So those are the bowl judgments. Just a few visuals here. Things falling out of the sky. 100 pound hailstones. Mountains moving out of their place. Lots of parallels. I think these are similar to what we have in the Old Testament prophetic scriptures. Just a few parallels. Isaiah 29. These are all in the context of the end of the period of tribulation. Just as I saw the sixth seal judgment at the end, I think this is a parallel. Isaiah 29.6 From the Lord of hosts you will be punished with thunder and earthquake. That's what we had here. And loud noise with whirlwind and tempest and the fire of a consuming, or the flame of a consuming fire. Isaiah 51.6 Lift up your eyes to the sky. So in another context in Isaiah. Chapter 51. Then look to the earth and beneath, and for the sky will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But the salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not wane. Probably an illusion or a prediction of this same period of time. Not only Isaiah, but Joel 3.16. This is the the fulfillment of Joel 3.16. 
The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble, but the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Salvation is right around the corner. We also have uh, Psalm 50, verses 4 through 6. He summons the heaven above and the earth to judge his people. So you have astrophysical, geophysical judgments. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens declare his righteousness. Notice the theme also of righteousness in association with judgments. For God himself is judge. Isaiah 54 through 6. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, while I. Uh, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, also the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all the nations. And I will fill this house, house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. These are Old Testament passages that probably refer to this end of this period that we call tribulation. One more passage. This one definitely, uh, Zechariah 14.4. In that day, his feet, the second coming of Christ, his feet uh, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will be uh, moved towards the north and the other half toward the south. There's going to be topological changes to the land of Israel, uh, beginning with the city of Jerusalem. All of these are judgments immediately preceding the second coming. So this is not something new. This is what the Old Testament predicts and prophesies. And now we just see the sequence as they find their uh, completion in relationship to the judgments of God. So we have all kinds of catastrophic cataclysms taking place on the face of the earth. Some more parallels. Uh, we saw these first ones. The sun darkened. We had a third of the heavenly bodies darkened and the trumpet judgments where men... Well, the bold judgments, men are scorched. In this case, we have darkness. So the sun is involved. Uh, there's no corresponding Egyptian plague. But now we have darkness in the fifth trumpet judgment with, that is painful. And we have torment. And the ninth plague is this thick darkness. Ninth Egyptian plague. Euphrates being dried up. Uh, not so close a parallel, but we have uh, these in the second Judgment frogs, not from the Euphrates, but that come out of the Nile. Uh, the seventh cataclysms on Babylon, on the kingdom. There's also uh, the kingdom of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the kingdom of the world become the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not quite parallel there, but it's on the occasion of the second coming, and this is on the occasion of the second coming. And we do have hail and fire as the seventh, seventh trumpet. So you do have astrophysical phenomenon 
in Egypt. Just a few parallels. So the bowls are very closely parallel to the plagues of Egypt. Um, I'm careful in trying to find types. Remember the criteria that I gave you on the hermeneutics class? Um, You see a New Testament kind of tie between the plagues and here. Uh, There's parallels for sure, in other words, but I don't know that there's a typological uh, connection. Does that make sense? That's why I'm careful to use the word... uh, uh, parallel. There's clear parallels, and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of other details that I didn't bring out uh, that we some of them I did bring out were allusion just the word plagues instead of uh, the others are not called plagues these are called plagues yeah so be careful when we talk about types chapter fifteen we have preparation for wrath. 16, we have the outpouring or pouring of wrath. And by the way, this is just another photograph that my friend uh, brought back with me of a sunset in Iraq. Uh, That's the tarmac there. That's the airport. Forget to point that out when I showed this kind of beautiful slide there. Backdrop for wrath. Okay. That leads us to chapter 17 and 18. We're a little bit ahead of schedule, but why don't we take a break at this point? And I know you're probably tired, so we'll probably end a little bit early if I can move through chapter 17 and 18.